0: Thursday when I was driving home from work, I heard something when I ran over something in the road, and I heard a sound that you don't want to hear when you're driving a car. And it's a sound you, you don't actually know is happening until you hear it for a while. You hear like, thud, 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 and you're like, okay, well... Maybe it's the road. Do you ever drive on on some of the freeways and you think, ah, it's probably not my car. I think it's just like something in the road, maybe the seam pattern or something. And I thought that for a while until I pulled up onto the newly paved streets of my neighborhood. They just redid them and I still heard it. And that's when I thought, "Uh uh-oh, we got a problem here. And I parked and I checked my tires and I'm like, all right, it's looking good. Then I come to my front right tire and I'm like, I think this might be the one. And I look and there it is. A big old bolt with a washer just looked like it was screwed right into my tire. Just ran right over it. And I thought, okay, this isn't too bad because I can still drive on it. I'm not doing any damage, but I do need to get this repaired. So the next morning, Friday morning, I go to the same tire shop that I have always gone to. My family's always gone to them. It's in Laguna Niguel. And the reason I go to them is because they'll always fix it for free. So you go up, and if there's something in your tire, they'll fix it for free. So I'm driving down there to the tire shop, I didn't think anything of it, I was just totally normal, and I looked it up on Apple Maps, and Apple Maps said it's open, it's normal times, my wife even told me it opens at 7 30 a.m., so I'm like, great, I'm driving down there, and I have like the Apple CarPlay thing, and I unplugged the Apple CarPlay just as I was arriving, because I thought, I know where it is, I'm good, I was getting ready to grab my briefcase, and get out, and all this stuff, again, I have to repeat, I've been in this store a lot of times. I've taken a lot of cars. I've taken my wife's car. I've taken my parents' car there to get stuff redone. And it was like totally normal. Until I pull up to this tire shop and I saw something that I think I've literally never seen before. I roll up. This tire shop is completely gone. Not like they're not in there anymore. Like the building was leveled. That building, the building next to it, the building all around, like, five buildings all around completely leveled. It was the weirdest thing. Cause I'm like, all right, I just drove my car on a flat tire all the way down here to get it fixed. And I pull up to the place and there's no building. It was just the weirdest thing. Have you ever like seen a building or a house or something that you've lived in or spent time in? Not that I've lived in the tire shop or anything like that, but like, I'm familiar. I know where to walk in. I know where the back is. I know where the bathroom is. I know where the lobby is. It was weird. And I come up to it and all I see is a big pile of broken up concrete. It was the weirdest thing. And I looked at that concrete and I thought, when did they like build this? And well actually that's not the first thought. First thought was, where in the world am I gonna get my tire fixed? I drove all the way down here, uh, so then I went to Walmart. And you have to pay at Walmart $15 to get your um, tire repaired. So just a pro tip, only go to Walmart if you're willing to spend $15 to get it fixed. Because this place would have done it for free. But I I was looking at those those piles of concrete, and it was a lot of concrete. I realize I never really think of what buildings are made of, right? You look at buildings, you walk in and out of them, you don't know what your house is made of, you don't know what your school's made of, you usually don't think much of it until all of those things are right in front of you and you can see them. I looked at that building up, that building was made in the 70s, so I thought this concrete must have been collected and put together like 50 years ago. It was just a weird feeling. I actually looked it up, apparently you can take the concrete and you can repurpose it somehow and make new stuff, I thought that because I'm looking at this big building that's knocked down, and it was, it was a trippy thing. And I thought the, the building materials that it's made out of are very important, something you never think of, but when it's all done, it's business, or in your instance, it's a house or a school or anything. You don't usually think of the building blocks, but I want to tell you that Paul says that God is building a building, and you are the building blocks. It's interesting. If you look at what the Bible says about the church, it says that he's making something big that you are a part of, and although we don't often think about the parts, it's helpful for us to think about the parts, especially when you're doing the construction process. right? If you're building a building or building a business or something like that, you're thinking very clearly about the parts that it takes to do that. The Bible says that in the building that God is making, the figurative building that he is making, that you and I are the pieces of the building, which should, if we rightly understand this, change the way you view yourself and view the person sitting next to you. Sometimes we don't think of ourselves as very valuable or important. We don't think of other Christians as very valuable or important. But the reality is, as Ephesians 2 says, God's doing something with us, and it should change the way we look at ourselves. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 19 to 22. This is really the second half of the passage we started last week. I was tempted to actually take last week's text and this week's text and put them together in our sermons because they're so similar. Remember last week we talked about how Paul is trying to tell these Gentiles, you are just as included in God's plan as the Jewish people, okay? They grew up in it. They knew their whole lives were part of God's kingdom, were part of God's family, all that stuff. They knew it, okay? But the Gentiles were never a part of that. But what the text is saying is, hey, if you're a Gentile, if if you're a person who grew up in Rome, you're a person who was a Greek, or you were a barbarian, or you were some other tribe, you can be fully included in what God is doing and totally a part of his plan. Okay? That's what last week was all about. He says that Jesus came, one of the things he did was he came to reconcile two groups of people that were really angry at each other. The two groups were the Jews and Gentiles. It says he broke down this dividing wall. Imagine if in this room there's a big wall between the two of your sections, right? There's two sections here. Imagine you don't get to see them. You're on this team. You guys are on that team. There's a big wall. This text says that Jesus came to break down that wall so we could have one new thing together called the church, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a man, a woman, whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, we're a part of one big new group. That's what he just said. Now look at verse 19. He says, if that's all true says so, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens okay when he says you who's he talking to remember you is talking about the gentiles so he's specifically talking to people who used to be separated from god and the bible and all that stuff they didn't have any association with god he says now you're not separated anymore you actually are just as close as anyone else to god now you're now you're part of this group you're close you No longer strangers or aliens. Do you remember back up in verse number 12? Do you remember what he called them? He says, Remember, at one time you were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant. So he says, At one time you were, now you're not. Verse 19, you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. He says two things about these people. He says, You used to be separated, you used to be stranger, you weren't a part of the same group, but now you're two things. You're a fellow citizen with all the other saints. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Isaac, all these people in the Old Testament who did good things for God. David, yeah, Nathan, Solomon, all the okay, now you are included with them. Now you, as a 21st century Christian, are included with With the first century Christians, you're all a part of this one package deal. As you're citizens with them, whatever rights and privileges that the Apostle Paul has or that other people in the Bible have, guess what? Now you are included in that group, right? That says something about these Gentiles. He says, don't don't think that you're a second-class citizen here, okay? Just because you're a Gentile. No, you're fully included. You are a fellow citizen with these other people, and you're a member of the household, right? To say you are a citizen, for many of you, that's not a big deal right? Most of you, if not all of you, were like, you've been citizens of this country since you were born, right? You're born as a citizen. Um, That happened sometimes in Rome, but it didn't happen for everybody. A lot of people acquired their citizenship, just like a lot of Americans today were not born Americans. They're naturalized citizens. Now they are. Now The government says you're a citizen. You have a passport that says USA, all that stuff. But he says, you're not just a citizen, a fellow citizen. You're also a member of the household of God, so it's like he's taking this imagery and he's saying, not only are you like a part of the same country and having the same rights and duties, but now you're also part of the family. Like that's a bigger step. That's a closer relational step than a citizen is. Citizen gives you rights, privileges, and all that stuff. But now he says, you're not just that. You're also a family member with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's why in Galatians he says, you know, if you believe in Christ, you're, you're a son of Abraham. You're a part of the family, even if you're not a son of Abraham in the sense that you're a Jew, right? just like most of you are not Jews, right? but you can call, be called a son of Abraham, so to speak, in the family of God because you have faith in Christ. That's what he says. You're a member of the household of God. That's a big statement, right? And by the way, as a teenager in the 21st century trying to figure out who you are, trying to present yourself in a way to the world and you know, who you're going to be, your identity, this is super important, if not the most important thing. If you're a Christian, that is the most important thing about you. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be on the the top of all your Instagram bios. That doesn't mean it has to be the first word. But here's what's most important about you, okay? The fact that you are a citizen with all the other saints and you're part of God's family, right? If you start to view yourself, I'm a a citizen with these saints and I'm a part of God's family, okay? That radically changes who you are, You're important, right? Um, That's why all the common cliches and phrases about, oh, you're valuable, you're worth, if that's not based in something real, then it's just kind of, I don't know, useless sayings. But if the Bible says you have been loved by God, you're a part of his family, that means that you're important, and that also means the person sitting next to you, if they're a Christian, they're they're tight with God too. It, It affects the way you view yourself, and it also affects the way you view other people who are Christians. It also, for these Jewish people, imagine you're a Jewish person hearing this letter, and maybe you were one of those Jewish people that was kind of treating the Gentiles in the church badly. Guess what you're hearing now? I can't do that anymore. I can't treat these other Christians in the church as second-class citizens just because they were, come from a different family. I can't do that anymore. I have to treat them with respect and dignity and honor because they are equally God's children like I am because I'm in Christ. Look at verse 20. If you want more, it says, you're also not just... Members of a household, you're not just citizens, you're also built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? So this group, now he's going to change the analogy. First analogy was, you're like citizens. Second analogy says, you're like members of a household, right? Family members. But he, even when he uses the word household, do you notice that's the, that's the turn? He's like, you're a part of God's house. Now when you hear that, what do you think? Oh, I'm a part of God's family. Or does he mean, literally, you're a part of the house, the structure, he starts to use that imagery too. So he kind of shifts the idea now. Now he's saying, you're not only like a part of the family, you're like a part of the walls and the beams and the concrete. You're a part of the thing that God is building here. He says, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those were the first people to speak God's word. Those were the first people to share the gospel. He says, if you ever want to know if you're important or valuable, or if this church, whether it be big or small, or whether people like your church or they don't like your church, if your church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, guess what that says? It's very important, very valuable, it's precious to God. He says you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the biggest thing of all, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Ultimately, our church or any group of Christians is ultimately built on Christ. And if your church is not built on Christ and it's not built on the apostles and prophets or the word of God is another way of putting that. if It's not built on that. Then it's not much of anything at all. It's just a group, just a club it says in verse number 21 in whom in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, this takes a lot of explaining, but he's basically saying it like what I said at the beginning, you're like the building blocks. And like God's taking you and you and you and block by block, he's putting us together and he's making this house, this structure that's going to be, what is it going to be in the end? A holy temple for God, right? You've probably never been to a temple. Um, Or if you have, it's been weird. Or, you know, you you watch Indiana Jones and there's the Temple of Doom and there's temples there, right? Um, Pagan temples. Um, Temples were like important places and they're important places to a lot of people, but ultimately, the temples that God made, the reason they were important was because the creator of heaven and earth said, I'm going to focus my special presence in a particular place. He doesn't have to do that, right? Because God fills the whole earth in one sense, right? God's everywhere, right? But there are special places that he says, I'm going I'm to put a lot of focus there, right? It doesn't mean that he's not omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there's certain places that are special to God, and that's where he's going to have his main focus. And in the Old Testament, where was it, right? It was in the Garden of Eden, right? Then it was on Mount Sinai. It was at the burning bush. Then it was at the tabernacle. Then it was in the Ark of the Covenant. Then it was in the temple that Solomon built, right? It was in all those different places. It was like God's special focus went from one place to another. Now, here's what he says. Where is God's special focus right now? Where's God's temple? Is it in heaven or is it here? This is the amazing thing it says. It's here. It's the church. It's in you. It's in the people that God is gathering together. That's a mind-blowing truth, right? We're just, you know, blocks of concrete unless we're put together into one big structure that God is going to fill with his presence. That's a big claim. In verse number 22, he goes further. He says, in whom you also are being built together, like right now, block by block, piece by piece, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Even some people look at this text and say there's even imagery that... As like the, the concrete, and this does not work with buildings, right? If you build a building, the structure will basically be the same later, right? Unless something happens, there's a hurricane or something, you know, and it blows down like you've seen in the news, right? But the structure doesn't really change. This goes a little bit further, and some people think what this means is it's like the building blocks themselves are getting molded and shaped over time. So that what the church is in the end, when every person now is perfect and righteous and holy, what kind of a building are we going to be? What kind of a a church are we going to be when it's not just Compass Bible Church or or this church or that church? It's the whole church together with God. That's an interesting thought. And that's what he's saying here. That's what we are. Um, Why is this important to any of us? Right? Because there's no Jew and Gentile fighting, right? We talked about that last week. We said maybe there's some divisions. There's the homeschool versus the public school. Uh, there's the, the athletes versus the nerds. There, there's the cool people versus the um, socially challenged people, right? There's like, you know, the different groups, right? And hopefully you're not in a way, When we talked about this a little bit, maybe you are a type of person who because of those distinctions, you're unwilling to join hands, so to speak, in unity with people who aren't the same as you. Right? That, that is one thing that this text is saying. But I think what verses 19 and 22 is going on to say is, hey, if you're a Gentile, let's say you're a person who was not included. Now you're more included than you think. Now God places a value on your life and your church that might be higher than you think. That doesn't mean that that should go to your head and you should say, well, I'm the most important person in the world. Right? That's not what this text is saying. But it is saying if you think you're worthless or you think you bring nothing to the table or you think there's no way you could be a part of God's big plan. Well, that's not true. This text says you are. That text, this text says that you are important to what God is doing. And you need to think of yourself that way and also the person sitting next to you that way. If you think of other Christians as a part of God's glorious and majestic temple that he's building, you're going to talk about them in a certain way. You're going to treat them in a certain way. You're, there's certain things you're not going to say about them behind their back. and There's certain things you're not going to do if you start looking at them and saying, no, 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 you're important to God. You're valuable to God. Super important. You need to view yourself as a part of this growing church that God is building. But remember, I know I've said this before, but I kind of have to give a warning. A lot of what we're going to talk about this morning is for those of you who are right with God. And again, I want even if you're not right with God, I want you to hear it this morning. But the certain things that are going to be said that are positive about who you are and your purpose in life, that kind of stuff, I don't want to mislead you and think that everything you're going to write down on your page today applies to everybody. Okay? The Bible doesn't say that. He's talking to specific people here. He's talking to those who bow the knee and say, I will submit to Jesus as Lord. He is going to be my God. I am going to follow him. Right? So as you're going to write these things down today, I do want you to have that warning in mind that he is talking to Christians. And this is going to use some strong language, some good strong language to talk about the comfort that Christians should have. But if you're one of those people that constantly pushes back against God and says, I'm not going to follow him, then I don't want you to look at these verses and say, oh, I'm taking comfort in these verses. I want you to put some hope in these verses and say, I can have hope in Christ, but I have to follow Christ. I have to repent of my sin. I have to turn and and trust God, then these things will be true about me. Okay, so I just want to say that as a warning before we write these things down. But I want you to write this down for point number one. I want you to be reassured about your place in God's plans. Be reassured about your place in God's plans. That is exactly what the Gentiles needed to hear. You are a part of what God's doing. Don't let anyone tell you you're not. And if you're treating some people like they're not a part of God's plan, then don't do that. And again, the context, what is it about? It's about Christians. It's about the church. It's about Jew and Gentile. But for you, it is helpful that that now your job is not to find your identity in what you were before Christ or your natural talents or your giftings or, to put it in a weird way but is it a textual way, in your Jewishness or your Gentileness, right? You're not supposed to say, that's the most important thing about me. Here's another easier way to put it. Do not define yourself based on anything other than what God says. Don't define yourself by other things. Don't say, yeah, you know, I'm pretty important because, don't, don't you know, I'm a really good athlete. Have you ever heard I'm a great athlete? Or, or you know, I'm really smart. Like, or, or, you know, what, people like me. People, I'm funny. I'm funny. Like, don't define yourself and give yourself any value and status based on that. Don't think of yourself like that. right? So for those of you who are whatever, athletic, or smart, or intelligent, whatever, like, okay, that's great, but don't define yourself that way, you're going to be proud, you're going to be arrogant, you're going to assume on God's grace, and you're going to think that you deserve it, and you're going to think that these things just should happen to you, because you're amazing, and everything should go well for you, okay, don't do that, but also, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you think, I'm not talented, I'm not good looking, I'm not smart, I don't have anything that that person has, I'm worthless, don't you dare say that either, because you're not, it's not true, if you're in Christ, that's not true about you. If you're a Gentile, so to speak, you're a person who was separated, and now you're, now you're brought close to Christ and you're in Christ, you're not far off. Okay? If you think of yourself that way, you're thinking wrongly of yourself. Some of you think wrongly about yourself often. You say things to yourself and about yourself that are wrong and they're evil. And some of you say it enough times, you end up believing what you say about yourself, and it's wrong. He says you're fellow citizens, okay? 1st subpoint there, I want you, what I want you to write down, if you're a Christian, you, we're included as privileged citizens, okay? You're included. Two things that you're included about and the one thing you're built on, right? That, that's what these subpoints are going to be. The first two things that we're included in. First thing we're included in is we're privileged citizens. What would that look like? Well, I read some stats today, or not today, but I read them this week. In the first century, there was about 50 million people that lived in the Roman Empire. 50 million, that's a lot, right? Um, but only about five million of them were citizens. So that's about ten percent, right? One out of every ten per- people were citizens with all the rights and privileges to vote, uh, the ability to have a fair trial, all those things. Most people in the Roman Empire, ninety percent of them, were not citizens. Can you think of anyone in the Bible that was a Roman citizen? Right? Do you know that Paul, the guy who writes this, actually is a Roman citizen? And he uses his Roman citizenship once. He actually does it, actually a few times, but one time he did it was in Philippi. Remember I told you this story a few weeks ago of the most important question. What should I do to be saved? Well, right after that, they're let out of jail, right? The Philippian jailer. And the people did not know that Paul was a Roman citizen. And because they didn't know, they put him in prison. They did all these things that they weren't allowed to do. They tortured him, did all these horrible things that you are not allowed to do to a Roman citizen. And they did it to him. And then Paul, when he comes back and he starts dealing with them, it says that they were ashamed, they were scared because they found out he was a Roman citizen, so they said, here, can we just, like, sneak you out in the middle of the night, and can you can you run away from the city of Philippi? And Paul actually says, no, we're not going to do that. You're actually going to make a big deal about how you're going to release us, right? And a lot of people read that and think, like, was Paul, like, being angry or arrogant or something like that? No, the reason he was doing that was so that all the Christians in Philippi would not... Be slandered later on to say, Oh, you're Paul, the guy who presented this church, he's just a criminal. Right? Paul was trying to set a, a good reputation for the church. But it's interesting. He used his privileges to say, you know what, I'm a citizen, I have certain rights, I'm gonna use those rights. Just like you, if you're an American, you have certain rights, you have certain protections and freedoms. That's why if you ever get lost or you ever get stranded, or some government takes you hostage, the the the, the government is of our country will, like, use all this force and spend all this money and time and effort trying to save people. Do you remember when, uh, it's weird. do you remember when Lonzo Ball's brother got in trouble in China? Do you remember, what's his name? Uh, Lamella? No. Lamella? Lamella? Was it Lamella Ball, right? I, no, was it leangelo Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I had a big baller brand shirt for, uh, at one point. Uh, I thought they were really funny. Uh, you know, you know about them? You don't know about them. Watch a documentary or something. They're crazy. Um, but I remember about that story. This is a few years back. Like, he got in trouble. He was, like, shoplifting in China or whatever. And the Chinese government, like, cracked down and said, like, 20-year sentence or whatever. I don't know how much it was. Um, but then, like, like Trump and all these people got involved. And they said, like, we're going to free this guy. And they got him out of jail. Do you remember this? Um, this is a couple years back. But I thought it was, like, the funniest thing. Like, why in the world do we care about some basketball player who, like, should not have been shoplifting in China. Like, are you dumb? Like, you were shoplifting in a foreign country. What do you think is going to happen, right? This is a communist totalitarian regime. You don't think something bad is going to happen to you? Um, anyway, but like all this attention, and all this money, and then the president gets involved. Do you know why? Because he, well, because he's a citizen, because he's famous too, I suppose, um, but also because he's a citizen. Right, like You know how many lengths the U.S. government has gone to to save and try to protect individual U.S. citizens? Like, they'll send entire teams to foreign countries to save people because they're citizens. There's like this care that should take place on citizens, but there's also, there's duties. Right? That's why some of you will get letters in the mail very shortly um, that will say, you need to report to the Orange County Courthouse to sit in for jury duty. 'Cause you're a citizen, right? Um that's why those of you guys who turn eighteen, how many of you turned eighteen, guys? Any guys turn eighteen? Any guys? Do you did you uh did you register yet for selective service? Have you done that yet? Uh-huh, exactly. Oh that's right. <laughs> no, Josh is though. He has to. Um Are you citizen, Tomas? No, okay, all right, all right. It's all right. It's all right, he's from Colombia. it's all right. Um Hey, if Columbia gets in a war, guess who they're calling back? (laughs) Their best and their brightest, you know? Um, But when you turn 18, you got to like register and stuff. Um, Point is, there's all these different citizenship responsibilities, but there's also privileges, right? Here's what he's saying. As a part of God's family and a part of God's kingdom, you have privileges and rights and amazing freedoms being a part of God's kingdom. Here's one way to put it. Paul said this philippians chapter 3 verse 20 he says but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself which is a concept we talked about in ephesians 1 it's like jesus is the head and he's taking the whole universe and he's putting it right underneath his head he's taking everything all his power and everything will be subjected to him one day Here's the point. We are waiting for a savior who's coming from our kingdom. Right? Uh, that, that's, that's the idea here. We're a part of his kingdom. We have these rights. The second thing says, You are um, a part of God's family. That's the second thing. Letter B, um, we are included in God's family. That's huge. You're included in God's family. It's one thing for you to get invited to someone's house for lunch. It's another thing to get invited maybe to stay there overnight. Maybe it's a Saturday night, and after something, you say, I'm going to stay over at their house, and they invite you to stay over at their house. Um, it's another thing for them to invite you to stay for a week. It's another thing for them to invite you to stay for a long period of time. Maybe you'll stay for a semester. I know some people that have lived with other families for like a whole semester while they finished high school or something like that. That would be a big commitment that a family would make to you, but it's possible. Okay, They might do that. It would be a whole other thing. For them to say, you are going to be a part of our family now, all the food in the pantry is yours, all the food in the refrigerator belongs to you, all of the love and care and affection of these parents, it's all going to be directed at you now. Also, the college savings that we've, we've had for our kids, now you're going to be included in that. Maybe we'll pay for this and we'll pay for that. You can use the car. Your phone plan is going to be our family's. You're going to be a part of our car insurance. Like, imagine all the things that would have to take place for a different family to adopt you, right? A lot of things. Now, less things for you maybe as a 16, 17-year-old than maybe a 4-year-old. That might be even a bigger commitment. But right now, think about it. A family, if they wanted to take you in, It'd be a lot of stuff, your school, all, all the stuff that you buy, right? It'd be a big commitment. Here's what God is saying. If you're a Christian, you are a part of his family right now. Some of us think that, yeah, I'll be included in God's family when I get to heaven, right? Like, you know, when I get to heaven and I'm with God and, and, and all the other Christians are there, yeah, like, yeah, that's when I'll be a part of his family. Do you know what the Bible says? That's not true. The Bible says that you are included in God's family right now. Here's a passage I want you to write down. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. To see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It goes on. It says, the reason why the world doesn't know us and doesn't recognize us as children of God is because they don't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be one day hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's like the same thing. Every time you talk about your inclusion with God, guess what it always goes back to next? Philippians 3 did this. 1 John John 3 did this. It's all, oh, you're part of God's family. You're part of God's kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're God's children now. And guess what? Jesus is coming back. That's the next thing. We always are looking forward to that. Which is why in our text it goes on to say, hey, guess what we're built on? We're built on the prophets and apostles and we're built on Christ. But one point of application here, and I kind of said this earlier, but if this is true about you, right, if you're included as a privileged citizen and you're included in God's family, do you understand that it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor? It doesn't really matter. I know it matters to you and it, there's things about it that are advantages and disadvantages, but ultimately it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're popular or you're an outcast, right? I'm just trying to give you the extremes. Most of you fall in between the extremes somewhere, right? You're, you're not the... Um, you're not the most popular person, and you're not the least popular, right? Some of you might think you are, but you're probably not. There's probably someone worse than you. Um, there's an account on Instagram, I probably shouldn't even say this, but there's an account on Instagram that's all, like, called Cringe, and it's, like, people who are very cringey. I, it's, someone sent me a video from them, and um, worse than you, right? Um, <laughs> you're, you're all pretty cool compared to the people. Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. Um yeah, I won't say anything more. Uh, you're you're somewhere like in between the coolest person, the most popular person, and the least popular. You're somewhere in between the smartest and the dumbest, right? You're somewhere in between, right? But it doesn't really matter where you fall on that on that line. If you're in Christ, that's the most important thing about you. It doesn't matter if you're rejected by others. It doesn't matter if you're embraced by others. It doesn't matter if you become famous one day or you die and nobody and you die alone, right? Um, Sorry, kind of graphic. But like, if you're in Christ, that's what matters most. And I know I'm saying that and you're thinking, yeah, right, yeah, right. Um, you, you You could tempt the opposite and you could say, I'm gonna try to chase all those things and think those matter most, but... Let's talk in 10 years and come right back. And guess what? We're, we're still talking about this. This is the most important thing about you. And if you're not in Christ, um, this ought to be all the more motivation to be right with God. Right? I get, does that mean that all my guilt and sin can be taken away forever? Does that mean I can be included in God's family? Does that mean I can have the full rights and accesses of a citizen? I don't think so, John, because you don't know the things I've done. Okay, well, here's the thing. This is the promise for Christians, right? Who are Christians the ones who earn their way to God? Remember, we just studied. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. You don't get there by earning all this status. This stuff is grace. That's why we're still in the series called Grace, because all this, the fact that you can be included, the fact that you can have privileges, the fact that you can be part of God's family, all of that is God's gift. That's not something that we earn. That's not something that any of you have earned. If if this is true of you, God gave it to you, and he can give it to the person sitting next to you, too. If you're one of those people that think, I can't be saved because, you know, everything would have to change, well, look at this and say, this is the most important thing. Next thing it says is you're built on the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? I want you to write it down like this. We're built on God's word. We are built on God's word. Here's why I put it that way. The apostles and prophets is a way to describe those people in the early church. The apostles, you know who those people are, right? Those 11 plus Judas. You you can add uh, Paul in there and maybe a couple others. uh, Maybe James, the brother of Jesus. And that's basically it, right? Those apostles. That's the first group. We've talked about that before. Um, then the prophets, and, and this is kind of debated. Some people think this is a reference to the Old Testament. That's possible. But this is probably talking about those prophets that came in the early church who were there to speak God's word when there was no Bible, right? You hear Pastor Mike talk about that a lot, right? They're, they're, they're preaching God's word without a New Testament, right? So you've got these people that do miracles and signs and wonders, not by their own power but by God's power, and you start to wonder, like, okay, if you're, if you're a small little church and everyone's opposed to you, Right. How important can we really be? Are we sure we're a part of this group? And Paul says, no, remember, you're built on the apostles and prophets. And how today can we manifest the built on the apostles and prophets? I think the best way we can describe it is if we're following what the apostles and prophets wrote. Okay? That's why built on God's word. If a church is built on God's word, we've got a lot of value a high level of importance. It doesn't matter if they have a big budget or a small budget. It doesn't matter if there's lights on their stage with worship or there's not, or if there's guitars or if there's any. It doesn't matter. They could be an old little tiny church or it could be a big impressive church. If you're built on God's word, that's the most important thing about you. In the first century, um, there's these people in Ephesus that could actually start to name off these apostles, and maybe some of them had seen them. Right? Paul was one of the apostles. You got Peter and, and James and John. You had these people. John was one of the guys who actually spent some time in Ephesus later on. Um, and they could point to those guys and say they know Jesus. They actually lived with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They talked to him. Uh, and the Gospels actually tell us. For, this is uh, John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus said to them, he says, I, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. He says, I got more information for you, but I'm not going to tell you right now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For, you will, for he, the spirit, will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus promises for these apostles, I'm going to give you my spirit. And through the power of the spirit, you are going to have God's word. Like God's actual word. That's why the book of Romans is God's actual word. So the book of Revelation is God's actual word. And the book of Ephesians is God's actual word. And that's why that's the most important book that you have ever read because it's sitting on your laps right now, and, it, and this is God's word, really from God. Jesus promised it. If you ever, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, the apostles, they, they just kind of went rogue. They didn't follow the message of Jesus. Paul changed the gospel. If you ever hear that, say that's crazy because Jesus promised the apostles are going to speak for him when he's gone by the power of the Spirit. He says, I have many things to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you right now. If you're in Ephesians 2, later on Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 11, Paul talks about this a little further. He explains that God gives gifts to the church, the big church, universal church. What are the gifts that he gives? Well, verse 11 says he gave the apostles and the prophets, okay, and those are that first two group of people we just talked about. The church is built on them. We have God's word. We heard it from them. That's why we have our New Testament. That's from the apostles and prophets, right? But then he also gives to the church the evangelists. The evangelists were people like Paul who would go from town to town and they'd start a new church. Sometimes they would stay there. Other times they would just start a church, collect the leaders of the church, and then leave and do it again. Right? The evangelists. And then also, what are his other gifts? The shepherds and teachers. The word shepherd is the word pastor. It says now God gives the gift of pastors and he gives teachers and he gives lay leaders and people who are small group leaders and God gives them not to now give God's Word in a new way, right, but to now teach the Word that God has given us through the apostles and prophets. So it's just interesting that that he gives more explanation, but our church, our church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right, and that's a weird thing, right, and a lot of people, if you came from a Catholic background, you might know, that Roman Catholics will criticize Protestants because they'll say, we are the only one true church that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what I'm telling them is, uh, if you're not built on the Bible, you're not built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? You're built on the foundation of the magisterium. You're built on the foundation of your tradition, right? So let's go back to God's word, and then that's the people who follow God's word. Those are the people who are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. A little bit confusing, but that's what he's talking about. By the way, if you want a fun fact, um, I think it's ironic that in Revelation 21, when the New Jerusalem is being described, Revelation 21, 14, do you know whose names are written on the foundation of the New Jerusalem? The apostles, right? Just interesting that later on, the last two chapters of the Bible explains the apostles and prophets, they're important, right? By the way, that's why sometimes when we look at the Gospels and we say, man, Peter, why'd you make that bad mistake? And well, that was so dumb. Be careful how you talk about Peter just because um, you know he's part of the foundation of the church. So you know when we say, oh, Paul, why did he make that mistake? It's like, well, be careful, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know if you wanna say that, right? I don't know if you wanna um, dis on the, the foundation of the church too much. Um, not that any of you are slandering the apostles or anything like that. Um, but I guess if you were, that's a very distant point of application. Last thing here, it says we're built on Christ himself. Okay, That's the last sub-point you can write down. We're built on Christ himself. If you want to ever be reassured about your place in God's plan, remember that not only are you included, but you're also built on something solid. You're built on the apostles and prophets, God's word, and you're also built on Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. We should probably talk about what that word means. Cornerstone could be one of two things. One thing that it could be was in an archway, you know how these Romans, they built these big arches, right? And when they build the arches, the cornerstone was not the bottom stone. It was actually the top stone. And in an arch, if you understand the physics of how that works, if you take that top part out, the whole thing falls in on itself. But if you have that top key stone at the top, it holds the whole arch together. Okay? That's one possibility for this word. Another possibility, probably the better possibility, one that you think of immediately, is an actual cornerstone. So like in a building, the bottom corner that does a couple things, it holds a lot of the weight, but another thing that a cornerstone will do is it defines the angle of the building. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but if we went to the corner of a big building and let's just say it was a nice, perfect square, right? Let's say it's a square. Then what it's going to do is it's going to define the wall shape. The wall shape is going to be a 90 degree angle right, if it has a, you know, obtuse angle or whatever, it will define the angles, right, that's one thing that a cornerstone does, and I think that's important to this imagery, right, Christ not only is the foundation of the church, he's also the one that defines the church, if a church starts to go outside of what Christ teaches, or what the apostles and prophets teach, then it's not a true church, right, but it defines what it is, another thing that it does, interestingly enough, have you ever thought about this, that a cornerstone holds together two walls, Okay. Why might that be significant? Because do you remember what he just talked about? These two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles? He says, now we are both one in Christ. It says, Christ broke down the dividing wall between us, and now it's like he holds up both walls, the Jew wall and the Gentile wall, and now we're together in one structure. It gives us a lot of analogies and imagery. I think it teaches us something about Christ, that he is our rock, he is our safe place, he's our stable helper, This is promise of the Old Testament. Um, Psalm 118.22 talks about how the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone about Jesus. Who are the builders? Those Jews in the first century, they said, nope, he's not our Messiah. And it's like, yeah, but they rejected him, and many of them later on will submit to them, submit to Jesus, and say, you're you're the Lord. Jesus actually quotes that himself in Matthew 21.42. He says, you ever heard that Old Testament saying, that the stones that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone that's that's me Jesus says it's also in Isaiah 26:28:16 Isaiah 28:16 says therefore thus says the Lord behold I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion a stone a tested stone a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation he's looking forward to this Messiah, which is why, do you notice in our text, if you're in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verse 22, it says, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, what word is used as Jesus' title? What, what's the first word that you read there? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, comma, what's the next word? Who's looking at their Bibles? What's the next word? Christ. Christ. Messiah. Promised one. Isaiah 28 one. Psalm 118 one. He is the promised one. He's the Messiah. Another passage you're going to turn to in uh, small groups, you don't have to turn there now, but First Peter chapter two, verse four through six says, "As you've come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones." being built up as a spiritual house. Do you see how it's the same imagery that Paul uses? Like, that's a world, like a big house for God, a temple for him. He goes on to talk about the cornerstone is ultimately Christ. Here's what I guess I'm trying to say with this last point, um, this this last sub-point. Most people will spend their life trying to be successful, trying to build relationships, trying to build wealth, trying to build a platform, trying to build popularity, trying to build fame, all these things just so they can trust in it, just like the rich fool in Luke 12, and they say, good, now I've got it. But when those things start getting taken away, people whose whole identity and worth and life is all wrapped up in that, you start to see how they crumble piece by piece. When their cornerstone is not Jesus, when their cornerstone is whatever, fill in the blank, they're, they're, they're athletics, right? Yeah, and then they get hurt, and now they can't play. Now they, they feel like I'm worthless. I can't do what I'm made to do. Well, because your whole self-worth was built up in your athleticism. Right? The people who are artists, right, who lose their vision and are able to see things the same way, and oh, now, 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 you want, now you're suicidal, right? It's like, well, what? Because your whole self-worth was in that one little thing? Right? That's not what you're supposed to do you lose your health or you lose your money or you lose your popularity or you lose your fame or you lose your relationships. That's why so many people today want to end their life. You realize, do you know why they want to end their life? Because all their hope was in something and that hope was taken away because they lost their health or they they lost a relationship or they fell out of favor with their parents and their parents are punishing them for that. If your whole self-worth is wrapped up in that one thing, you shouldn't be surprised if when it's taken away, everything crumbles. That's why Christ is the solid rock. That's why he's our cornerstone. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll also appear with him in glory, right? Christ is your life. That's what it needs to be all about. Back in our passage, it says that we're made into a temple for God. I don't want to miss that. Uh, Point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to see the whole purpose in this. Point number two says, I want you to be holy because you're made for God. That's the point. It says we're built into a holy temple for God. Now, what kind of people should you be? Actually, that phrase comes from 2 Peter 3. If Jesus is coming back, and if the world is going to be changed, and all the things that we find so valuable and important are going to be taken away, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? When it's all taken away, right? And if you know, and many of you know for certain, it's all going to be taken away, what kind of people should you be? Holy. Because you're, you're made for God. And sometimes we talk about doing good and being a good person. Right? And if we say that and we divorce that concept from the reason why, a lot of us aren't very motivated to do it, right? Why should you avoid the parties? Why should you not get drunk? Why should you not smoke weed? Why should you not have sex? Why should you avoid all those things? Why? Everybody else? Well, okay, because if you're made for God and if you're holy, and if God is building you into a holy temple, then I guess you should because it's not about you anymore. It's about him. That your life will not be all about making money. It will not be all about getting married. It will not be all about having cute kids. It will not be all about having a big house. It won't be about that. You might have some of those things. You might not, but it's about Christ. Be holy because you're made for God. I'm a golfer. I've told you I'm a golfer. You know that. Some of you looked with contempt on the fact that I'm a golfer, and that's fine. Um, Did you know that one of Tiger Woods' backup putters sold last year, one of his backup putters. So he never even really used it, but it was made for him in 2002 and he sold it just um, like a year ago, I think, August of 2021. Do you know how much this backup putter of Tiger Woods sold for? It sold for $390,000. The material to make that putter probably costs 40 bucks, but it was Tiger Woods' backup putter if you know this name, Scotty Cameron, he's the one who made it for him, right, if you know anything about golf, Scotty Cameron putters are like the nicest putters, they're expensive, right, um, but it wasn't just any Scotty Cameron putter, it was specifically designed and made for Tiger Woods, and the reason it was so expensive is it's made to look almost exactly like the one he uses. He's been using the same putter for over 20 years, he's won 14 of his 15 majors with this putter, it, it, he'll never sell it, he shouldn't never, never sell it, it should be in a museum, right, when he dies, right? That thing would be worth tens of millions of dollars, right? Why? Well, because it's Tiger Woods. Not because of what it's made of, but because of its owner, because of who it was designed for, because of the significance it, in the person it represents. And that's kind of the point here. If we're a holy temple for God, that's what gives the value, not in what you are, because you're just again, kind of like the putter, made of $40 worth of stuff, right? You ever, you ever heard this? That the human body, all the, the, the stuff that's in your human body is made of about $40 of gardening supplies, right? You can find all the material in your body, all the carbon, all the oxygen, all of it you could, you could buy it for about 40 bucks at the hardware store. Right? It's actually very interesting, right? But you're valuable and important not because of what you're made of, but because God made you and you're made for God. It's the same way with the church. It's the same way with the Christian life. We're valuable, we're or something because of who we're made for. They told you that in the Bible God's special presence moved from place to place. It moved from it moved from Eden. Then it moved out of Eden. There's a symbolism in the ark, right? When Noah got in the ark, it's like God was there with him basically. The ark of the covenant, that was that box where they put the 10 commandments and some other items. And whenever that box that little ark was taken away from the nation of Israel there was a phrase that was used in the book of first Samuel when um, the the Philistines are fighting against the Israelites and they take the the ark of the covenant away and they steal it one of the ladies in town in Shiloh gave birth to a baby boy and named the baby boy Ichabod Um, Ichabod is a word which means glory has departed the glory of God left God left us. Right? And for the Israelites, that's basically what happened. Right? God left. Ichabod. Right? Don't name your kid Ichabod. Right? That was not on our list of baby names. Right? Um, for Jordan, no, it's Jordan, not Ichabod. But it represents something. And when Ichabod is said, if someone uses that word Ichabod, what it means is God left. Right? God left you. He's gone. Um, what this text is saying is, If you're a Christian, God will never do that. That doesn't happen again. He's not leaving. Some people are afraid that God will leave them or they'll lose their salvation. This text is saying, remember, you are a stone. You are a piece of concrete that God is specially fitting in his house. And guess what? He doesn't remove bricks that are already in there. You're secure. And he's telling these Gentiles, look, you're part of God's thing. That's why the church is compared to a temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I don't know if you know this text, but 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And he's talking about the church collectively. He says, all you guys together, don't you understand, where is God's special presence on a Sunday morning? Well, it's in this room. It's in the room over there. It's in all these different churches, right? Well, I thought God's everywhere. Yes, God's everywhere. But where is his special attention and focus? It is with his people. It's inside of you. He says, don't you know that we are God's temple if God's spirit dwells in us? He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In that context, he's saying if anyone's going to come in and mess up this church, just know this, you destroy God's temple, you mess up God's church, you mislead God's people, you seduce his people into sin. If you, as Luke 17 says, lead other people into sin, you want to destroy God's temple, just know who you're messing with. That's a good application for us as Christians treating other Christians well. You mess with other Christians, just know who you're really messing with you with God. And inversely, for yourself, in your own life, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, you're going to turn there in uh, small groups this week, but 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says that your body itself is a temple of God. Like your, your, your actual physical body, it's a temple of God. Why? Because it says your body is a temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body and with your body. You might be thinking, well, how do I do that? How am I supposed to glorify God in my body? Well, the verse before that, you know what it says? It's flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, they commit outside the body. right? They do things in the world. But sexual immorality, they sin against their own body. It's like they're using God's temple to do something that God disapproves of. It's like using God's temple to be the place where you're offering pagan sacrifices is the idea. Like, you can't do that. Don't do that. You're God's temple. That's why if God's spirit dwells in you, in your body, you can't treat your body sinfully. that's an odd topic, but that is very important. Um, By committing sexual immoral acts, what are you doing? You're sinning against God's temple. That's what he says. By using substances to alter your body and mess up your body and even your mental state, guess what you're doing? you're messing with God's temple. For some of you who are tempted to harm yourself and to hurt yourself or to cut yourself, right? what are you doing? Well, you're, you're doing something wrong against God's temple, something you're not allowed to do. In the same way that you can't you know, cut your sister, right, you can't cut yourself. In the same way that you can't kill my family or my daughter or my wife, you can't kill yourself. Don't do it. Right. that that's, that's very serious. and I know, I know we you know want to be sympathetic if, if you feel those feelings, but but ultimately there's a truth behind this that you can't do. It. It's not allowed. It's a crime against God. You can't do it. And again, I know this morning that that kind of topic ties together with this concept of identity and this concept uh, of knowing who you are in Christ. But if you're a Christian, there's some truth that the Bible gives. your body's not your own. You belong to God. You're also a temple for God. I told you at the beginning, but um, with the stones and the structures and the things that I saw at this tire place, um, I looked it up and you can actually reuse that concrete. One thing that they do is they take it and put it into crushers and then they'll separate out the, the metal rebar and they'll take the concrete and they'll crush it again. They crush it into six inch size um, pieces and then they'll throw it through another filter and they'll crush it down all the way to be under one inch in diameter. Very interesting. These big blocks are done to do that. And then what you can take that stuff and do is you can pour it in and build a new foundation, or you can take it to a concrete company that they'll process it, and they'll turn it into new recycled concrete to build something new. That's the imagery that Paul's talking about. says it's like a building was knocked down, and now God is taking it, taking the pieces, includes us, and he's rebuilding us into something new for him. That's the way you should view this church. That's the way you should view any solid church. That's the way you should view the universal church. And that even affects the way you view yourself. That if you're in Christ, you're a part of God's plan. You're a part of what God is doing in the world. The most glorious thing that God's doing in the world, he includes you in. That's huge. So if you are tempted to find your identity and your satisfaction and your self-worth and something else, don't. It's a slippery slope. It's dangerous to do that. Let me pray and ask God to help us with this. Let's pray. God, we recognize that you're holy and you're just. We know that you are a good God who loves righteousness and we pray that this text would help us all view each other rightly, that we view the church rightly, that you're doing something here that's glorious and spectacular and what it will be one day, we don't see yet. That's why every church has its defects and its problems and we're we're selfish and not unified as we need to be, but but you're, you're changing us and making us into something glorious. I pray that we would not forget that. I pray that we'd value each other. We'd value our own life because of that. We would um, respect you in all things, and we'd fear you. I pray ultimately that you'd get glory through the way that we respond to this sermon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.